Welcome back to the program. When Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992 and came in second in the New Hampshire primary, he dubbed himself the Comeback Kid. The idea being that Americans loved and admired the story of resurgence, the ability and the character to come back from seeming defeat. Perhaps no president's story embodied that more than FDR. Struck down with polio at age 38, the polio not only further shaped his character and honed what Oliver Wendell Holmes called his first-class temperament, but perhaps taught him skills that he would need as he taught the nation to deal with and recover from its own twin crises of war and depression. That story provides the backdrop for James Tobin's new book, The Man He Became. James Tobin is the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Ernie Pyle's War. He's the author of To Conquer the Air, The Wright Brothers, and The Great Race for Flight. And it is my pleasure to welcome James Tobin to the program to talk about The Man He Became, how FDR defied polio to win the presidency. James Tobin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. The idea of contracting polio, even in those days, at the age of 38, 39 years old, was a rare thing. This wasn't something that that usually happened. No, that's right. Um, Of course, the the name that polio went by in those days was infantile paralysis. It's been named that because when, when it became more common in the late 19th century, it was mostly very small children who got it. But as it became more common in the early 20th century, more and more older children and even young adults got it. So it was rare, but not unheard of for a man of that age to to get sick. And by age 38, Roosevelt was already on his way to trying to achieve his dream, which was to be president, something that he had always wanted. He had certainly wanted to follow in the footsteps of, of Teddy Roosevelt, and the presidency was really the goal that he had set for himself. It was for a long time, uh, really, I think, from from when he was a kid at some point. And his distant cousin, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, was really his idol. And he modeled his whole career on on, uh, Teddy's example and uh, pursued that relentlessly from the time he was certainly in college and then in law school and set his sights on the state legislature. He was Harvard-educated, born with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. At what point did it become clear that this experience of having polio, of going through the recovery from that, that that was in some way going to be part of how he would redefine himself, part of his character? Well, I think that uh, uh, FDR and his his close political aides realized that it was actually a handicap for him to have this sort of silver spoon background. Although he had uh, had a kind of meteoric rise in national politics, during the Wilson administration and then running for vice president in 1920, he was still sort of held back by that elite uh, background of his. Now, of course, one could never say it was a blessing that he got polio, but he and his key political aide, Louis Howe, did start to turn it to their advantage when he was thinking about a comeback in the middle 1920s. And what they realized, really just sort of step by step, kind of a by accident, was that with reporters, this image of a, of a guy who had had everything and who was laid low by this terrible disease and now was fighting for a comeback, that made a great story. And it allowed him to portray himself not as the, not as the guy to whom everything had been handed, but as a fighter who had come back from uh, terrible trouble. And that, that allowed people to identify with him who wouldn't have otherwise. Part of what's so striking about that 
is, in, to put it in, in sort of cynical contemporary terms, it also has the advantage of being true. In many, <laughs> in many ways, it did reshape Roosevelt's character. Well, that's right. That's right. This isn't as if it was just a public facade uh, made for made for press consumption. Um, no, this is what really was happening to him. Um, and you know, while it's it's awfully difficult to say exactly how an event like that shapes your character, it certainly we we can say for sure that it that it pulled those elements up from his character, and and he was able to realize maybe for the first time in his life that he had a kind of strength that nobody else had ever suspected that he had. He was, you know, he was this charming guy, very bright, a wonderful talker, but nobody knew, including probably himself, that he had the ability to come back uh, from, this, from this terrible setback. It also had a profound impact on his relationship with Eleanor. Their, their, as you read about it, I mean, their marriage had been in trouble prior to this. There was the affair with Lucy Mercer, and in some ways, it brought them back together. I think it did. Um, they, they had, uh, you know, for several years, uh, the, the, Eleanor discovered this affair with Lucy Mercer in 1918. Roosevelt got sick in 1921. For three years, their marriage, although it had remained, you know, together, it remained together, was very tense. The children later testified to this. But once Roosevelt got sick, Eleanor absolutely... Uh, tended to him, literally nursed him for several months. <clears throat> but then, uh, when it became clear that Roosevelt had to spend a lot of time away from home pursuing his recovery, eventually um, spending um, weeks on end at, at Warm Springs, Georgia, for re- physical rehabilitation, she began to move then in into her own separate um, political path, becoming very influential in Democratic Party politics in her own right, and so, increasingly, they kind of led parallel but separate lives, helping each other, but not, you know, just really no longer um, a, 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 the, the picture of a married couple. But in many ways, it redefined the terms of that marriage, because while they did lead separate and parallel lives, there was the commitment that Eleanor had made to helping him recover which which stayed with Roosevelt, which really provided the basis for this ability of them to lead these parallel and separate lives. Well, that's that's certainly true. And he was utterly supportive of her, too. I mean, I think they had an unspoken understanding that they were going to be in this kind of partnership. He would help her, she would help him, and, uh, and, and that was the pattern that was set uh, uh, that, that lasted throughout his presidency. One of the mythologies that has grown up around this, and you talk a lot about it in the book, is this idea that Roosevelt worked so hard to conceal his polio, to conceal his disability. So much has been made out of, of that over the years. Talk a little about that, James. Well, it's, it's still a little bit of a mystery. I mean, when I was a kid in the 60s, um, everybody that I knew was well aware that FDR had polio, that he was crippled, that he couldn't walk on his own. And yet, um, around the time of the debate over the FDR memorial in uh, the 1990s, it became conventional wisdom, I think partly just because of the, the whole cynical post-Watergate way that we view politicians, um, to think that he had concealed his, his paralysis. That's simply not true. If you if you study uh, his campaigns, 
uh, especially as he's making his comeback in the late 1920s, you realize that 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 uh, he and everybody else was was talking about his condition. This was this was uh, a, a matter of debate, of conversation. As I said earlier, it, it helped to shape his own image. Um, and so it's only later, I think, when people looked at ways in which he tended to. Um, minimize the extent of his disability, which is a lot different than concealing it. Um, I think that that myth became became common, and I'm I'm shocked by how often today I I hear people say when they hear what I'm working on, uh, oh yeah, isn't it terrible how he covered it all up and nobody knew about it? I mean, it's just it's just mythological. And in fact, all he really cared about, or the main thing he cared about, is he didn't want to fall in public. That's right. Um, I, I had uh, a couple of long conversations with um, one of the Roosevelt's grandsons, Curtis Roosevelt, uh, who has written a wonderful memoir about his about his grandparents. He lived in the White House for a while as a as a child and a teenager. He made it very clear that Roosevelt did not want to be photographed when he was walking um, because of this fear, this this constant risk that he would fall. Uh, this would be terribly embarrassing, and he did fall in public sometimes. Um, uh, there are at least a couple of occasions during the presidency when he fell, so that couldn't that couldn't happen too often. He also didn't want to be um, uh, shown in public in a wheelchair, which was too strong a symbol of invalidism. Uh, that wasn't going to work for him. There was scrutiny of it at the time, and in fact, he proved repeatedly that that except for the disability, he was extremely healthy. Right. You know, I mean, at, in the 1920s. Um, lots of misunderstanding about polio. Some people thought uh, maybe it wasn't really polio, maybe it was syphilis, and this had, had affected his ability to walk, and maybe it had even affected his brain. Um, so uh, he, had to, he had to show everybody that he had the physical vigor um, to, to uh, hold a high office, to, to be able to campaign, and, uh, and he simply proved that by doing it. Uh, in 1928 when he ran for governor of New York. And everybody could see, my God, this guy is the picture of health. He just can't walk. And in fact, in the unintended consequence category was the other aspect of what helped him become president was that while he was recovering, he was able to stay out of the wars that were going on in the Democratic Party. Yes, this was <laughs> it was a, a, a great uh, unintended benefit. Uh the party was really tearing itself apart in the 20s, uh, divided between um, the so-called wets, people who were against prohibition, led by Al Smith, the governor of New York, um, and the dries, uh, people from the uh, Democrats from the, from the South and from the West who favored prohibition. And um, this was just a melee in the party. FDR did align himself with Al Smith, but he was not a strong wet. And because he wasn't running for office, and because he was seen as this sort of pathetic figure on the sidelines, he didn't have to wage those battles himself. And um, and so when his opportunity did come to run for governor, he was ready to step in without having been tainted by all of this warfare. To what extent did Louis Howe, at least, and others around him, understand the advantage of this? Really understand that he didn't have to dirty himself with the politics of the moment because he was recovering. <laughs> well, that's an interesting story. Um, Louis Howe was this kind of eccentric um, a newspaper man who had worked for FDR from, from the time of his days in the New York State Senate. Um, and when FDR was getting ready 
in the middle 1920s, physically and politically, to try and mount this comeback. Howe realized that he had to play this game with reporters and politicians to say, he's going to be ready, he's coming back, but he's not ready yet. Now, that was true also. FDR was trying to recover as much ability to get around um, with his braces and canes as he possibly could. He hoped, he still hoped someday that he might walk without any assistance. And so they were working on his physical recovery. Um, and yet they, they played that card to keep him out of races that he didn't want to run in 1924 and 1926. And that was very astute. Finally, in 1928, he was, he was really obviously, uh, uh, healthy and he had to succumb to pressure finally to run, even though, uh, he also had to give up, uh, the time that he could spend on further efforts at, at recovery. And talk a little bit about the parallel side of that, which is this story of, of the comeback kid, really, being able to triumph over adversity, something that Roosevelt realized, as we've talked about, but that Jim Farley also realized. Jim Farley was uh, sort of the architect of Roosevelt's first campaign for president in 1932. Um, he, he, was a, he was a New York State politico. He had been New York State boxing commissioner. And as he's going around in 1930, 1931, traveling around the country, trying to round up Democratic delegates to declare for Roosevelt, he started to realize the power of this comeback story. And because he'd been boxing commissioner, he knew boxing well, he would say later, there was no greater accolade in sports than to say this guy was on the deck and he came back to win. That was a great story. Talk about the ways in which Roosevelt immediately understood that and really used it to his advantage. I mean, he, he really embraced it immediately. He did, but, you know, that was a, um, it, it was more sort of in his presence, in, his, uh, in, in being able to show how, um, how healthy he was physically other than um, his legs to be able to show the tremendous vigor of his speech, the way he talked to people, and just exuding this charisma. He would only, when speaking to, to audiences, he would only mention um, his disability in passing. He would make a joke out of it, like in 1928. You know, he'd be talking about the issues. He'd be talking about his own candidacy, what he planned to do as governor. And he'd, the crowd would be laughing, and there he'd be, the sort of picture of health, and he'd say then, finally, take a pause, and he'd say, oh, it's too bad about this unfortunate sick man, isn't it? And everybody would laugh. To what extent, and, and maybe it's, it's wrong to put too fine a point on it, but to what extent did the recovery from polio further shape who Roosevelt was? Because one of the things you talk about is his learning new ways of walking and trying different experiments. And in many ways, that parallels the Roosevelt presidency, the idea of bold, persistent experimentation. Talk about that, Nexus. I, I think that's right. You know, and, and um, if, if you look at all of the steps that he took, all of the things that he tried, he tried all kinds of things, um, various kinds of therapies, uh, various kinds of exercise equipment. He was always looking for something new that might help him fully recover. Okay. He didn't commit himself to any one specific therapy. He was willing to try everything. And in fact, when he finally realized that, that he was pretty much at the end of his ability to recover 
uh, uh, the nerves and the muscles in his legs. He then listened to physical therapists who said, um, Mr. Roosevelt, you're not going to be able to fully walk again. You might as well get used to that. But we can teach you better ways of getting around so that you can walk more easily with braces and canes and crutches um, so that it looks more natural. He was concerned about that, and, and he adjusted to that. He compromised, um, he compromised on his goals. That, that's the spirit of the New Deal. When you watch him become president, and he even says right on the verge of, of taking the oath of office, he says, we are going to try one thing, and then if it doesn't work, we're going to try something else. But above all, we are going to keep trying things. And I think that very much does characterize his presidency, and I think he learned that method um, of approaching problems in the 20s, trying to recover from polio. And how much of that do you think was in Roosevelt's character and Roosevelt's persona and personality before the polio? To, to what extent was this new? <laughs> well, I guess that's the $64,000 question. You know, um, to, to, to go deep, to figure out motives in people is difficult. Um, I, I see it as, as something that he learned through experience. Um, it seems to me that that, that um, sort of experimental way of, of going about the, the, the task of government is, is reflected very much more in his career as president after he'd recovered, done the polio recovery than before he had gotten polio. Um, but, you know, Roosevelt famously did not talk about his deepest thoughts, his right. deepest emotions. That was just foreign to him. So to a certain extent, we just don't know the answer to that question. We can't put him on the couch, and even if we could, he would probably run a number on us and not really, <laughs> not really be very frank with us. Of course, the, the broader framework is the way that, that he took over a country that was also in the throes of trying to recover as well, something that he understood well. Uh, that's true, and and it's funny how often during the New Deal, um, even during his inaugural speech, um, the famous speech about the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he refers to the problem of being paralyzed by fear. He uses the word paralyzed, and nobody much mentioned it, nobody much commented on that at the time, however much that speech was was appreciated and discussed. Nobody said he's talking about paralysis and how the the main thing you have to fear is not the physical problem that you face, not the material problem, but the emotional, psychological hurdle, obstacle of fear. And, uh, you know, uh, that obviously came out of his own experience. James Tobin, the book is The Man He Became, How FDR Defeated Polio to Win the Presidency. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.